Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios as we wrap up the weekend for the Braves who are out on the road and they're going to be there for a while. It's 11 games that Atlanta has to pack into this one. Three against the Cubs as they're in battle again on Sunday up at Wrigley Field. Then you get four against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then it's going to be four games against the New York Mets, including a doubleheader from way, way, way back early in the first half of the season. But all of that is stuff that we will get to, of course. We've got a lot to get into about the week that was for this Atlanta club. A very good homestand. A kind of a shaky weekend, obviously, up at Wrigley. It started out really well. And then we've seen a little bit of struggle, I think, on the mound from the starting rotation, most certainly. And the fact that, hey, I think we knew that the offense is not going to be able to cover it up each and every game. But if you give this club a chance, they certainly will be hanging around offensively more times than not. Uh, That aside, and we will get into, of course, the Cubs series and recap some of that and some of the things that went well, like the return of Max Fried. Don't want to bury the lead, but that's something we've been talking about on the show for about three months. When were the Braves going to get Max Fried back? Well, they have him back. That's a big story. We'll hear from Alex Antopoulos, who was on this very radio station with Carl Dukes and Mike Bell, discussing the trade deadline, what happened, what didn't happen, what the thinking was for the Braves and the moves they made, and, of course, the moves that they didn't. You'll hear about that a little bit later in the show as well, and we'll uh, go into the big-picture stuff for all of Major League Baseball for the trade deadline. is, I think, one of those most intriguing dates of the entire season. You just kind of wonder who's going to go where, what teams are going to buy, what teams are going to sell, we got plenty of that to get into. Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic is going to join me a little bit later in the show to size up some of the rest of the trade dealings around baseball. Before we get too deep into everything here, and of course a lot of Braves talk is in our on our horizon here and in the very near future, I want to remind you to subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you find it on the Odyssey app as well. If you want to follow along with me or the show, you can do so by the wonders of social media. I don't think we're calling it Twitter anymore. I think we're calling it X. I'll call it both just in case you want to know what platform I'm talking about. But you can find me there at Grant McCauley. You can find the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. On Instagram, it's uh, at From the Diamond and at Grant McCauley. Those are the places you can find me on that particular platform. You can like the show on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond there. And if you need links to all of these things, fromthediamond.com is the place to find those. So let's talk a little bit about what's been going on for the Atlanta Braves and particularly the trade deadline, which was going to be the big story, I think, across baseball. And, you know, we talked about it. I've been asked about it on multiple call-ins on just about every show on the station multiple times. What are the Braves going to do? What do the Braves truly need? And I think as much as it's you know tempting, and we can all be kind of prisoners of the moment to look at a particular game or a particular series or a bad start or a bad night at the plate or a cold streak to think, okay, well, you got to replace this guy. And you got to replace this guy and this guy and you got to make this trade and that trade. Hey, we're all, I think, subject to that line of thought because you all want to make the team better. But this is a pretty good team, I think, to kind of go with the obvious here. When you're sitting on the best record in Major League Baseball, the Braves have been 
pretty much right where they want to be, and they are where they want to be heading into the stretch drive for a couple of different reasons. And the first and most obvious one is you want to be leading your division. You want to have a nice, comfortable lead, which the Braves have. If you add up every other divisional race in baseball, the Braves have a bigger lead than all of those combined. That's how much control they have over the National League East. Now, I'm not here to tell you about you know, the National League East race and how we're trying to decide that. I think the Braves, if you're looking to control your destiny, they're handling that part of it pretty well right now. Now, looking into the second half, things have not been quite as much fun or as consistent, I think, for the Braves as it was particularly in the month of June and rolling into the All-Star break. I mean, the Braves went, I believe, 11 consecutive series winning all of those series. I mean, they just flat out weren't losing. The Braves hadn't lost a rubber match to a series until here in the second half, and they've lost a couple of series and a handful of series. And, and that, I think, has just been something that is a very stark contrast to what we were expecting for a while. But you know, I'm here to tell you, the Braves have got about, what, 53 games left this year? They're probably going to lose somewhere between 15 and 20 of those, maybe a couple more, maybe a couple less. I don't know. They might get hot again. But either way, they are going to lose some more games. It's going to happen. And every time that they lose, I think it's the opportunity to, you know, analyze it in a way that may not necessarily align with some of the big picture thinking and, of course, some of the projections that a team goes through when they start to decide what they need at the trade deadline. So putting all that aside as we are, again, going to get into all of that stuff and more as we continue on from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game over the next hour and 53 minutes here on the live show and however long we have left on the podcast. I promise we're going to try to get to every bit of it. But as I look at what the Braves were dealing with at the deadline, I think that the obvious hope is that you can make moves that make your club better. Could you find ways to make a bigger trade that would maybe satisfy a larger need that could be around for a long time, like a controllable starter? I think you're always going to be looking for one of those. You can get a controllable starting pitcher into your rotation. You may give up whatever you have to and have that guy around for a while. I think that makes a ton of sense. I don't know that there were too many of those guys moving, though, at the trade deadline, to be honest with you. And there certainly weren't the likes of, say, Dylan Cease or Mitch Keller. Some of the ones that people were looking at saying, why don't you go get that guy? Well, I don't know that those guys were necessarily available. And if they were, I don't know that the deal lined up for any of the other, what, 28, 29 teams that might have been looking for him. And clearly, they stayed put. The kind of guys that did move, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer, yeah, you weren't going to get them. The Mets weren't going to pay the Braves to have Justin Verlander or Max Scherzer pitch for them. And who knows what that would have been on the no-trade list. I don't know. But that's some fantasy booking that we don't even need to get into because that was never a realistic possibility. On the other side, I think that the Braves' biggest need was the one that they addressed in the week leading up to the trade deadline and then with their one deal on Tuesday, and that was to make the bullpen a little bit better. Now, that might sound ridiculous based on the series in Chicago where a couple of your starters got roughed up and they weren't able to give you the innings that they needed to, and it might have you kind of wondering, hey, why didn't we go get a starter at the deadline? But as I mentioned, you do have Max Fried back now. That's not a small development for this Braves club. You know, there were going to be times, I think, ups and downs that Bryce Elder was going to go through over the course of this season, and we're seeing some of those downs right now, and we've been seeing them for a little while. Charlie Morton, meanwhile, he's been kind of an enigma. We're going to dig a little bit deeper on that, and we're going to hear from Bryce Elder, for that matter, on what he feels is kind of going on with his season and where he feels like he's at heading into the final two months because Bryce Elder is still an important pitcher for this Braves staff. Even as they try to fill the fifth spot of the rotation, however that looks, whether it's Yanni Chirinos or Michael Soroka or whoever it may be, you've still got to figure out how to get those innings. And right now, the Braves are hoping that Bryce Elder can kind of bounce back, right the ship, and continue to give them some contributions. But you're also going to have, at some point, Kyle Wright getting back. And the hope is that that'll be 
I would say early, maybe first week of September. And those, I think, were the two big things. The health of Max Fried being back and the obvious optimism around Kyle Wright coming back and contributing to your starting rotation. Those were the two biggest reasons why you didn't go out and get a starter. And I'm not sure that there was a starter out there better than Max Fried, number one. And number two, somebody that really just moved the needle enough for the Braves to be able to pull off the deal. And Alex Antopoulos did say if it made sense, we'd figure it out with six starters. But they do expect to have Kyle Wright back. And we are going to hear from Alex Antopoulos a little bit later. But getting that bullpen a little bit more deep with Brad Hand and with Pierce Johnson, both of them uh, cast offs from the Colorado Rockies, who I'm sure are excited to join a pennant race. Getting Yanni Chirinos on a waiver claim, you know, he might be able to give you some serviceable innings. But then you're getting healthy with A.J. Minter. Dylan Lee's on a rehab assignment and hopefully get Jesse Chavez back. So I think it's a numbers game as much as it was anything for the Braves, long story short, when it comes to this trade deadline. But the intrigue certainly was there around a club that has done as well as the Braves have done over the course of 2023 and with much bigger aspirations for what they want to accomplish this year. I mean, I was asked, and I actually saw this on 929thegame.com a little bit earlier. I was going through and listening to the Alex Anthopoulos audio that you're going to hear later in the show. And for whatever reason, better or worse, not trying to out anybody, but we're still running a video that was from way back right before opening day. And the question was asked by Carl Dukes, and I think it was a good one. Is it World Series or bust for the Atlanta Braves? Yes. It was then. It is now. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to make all of the biggest trades that happen at the deadline. But this club and what it's been able to do thus far and how well it's been constructed, how big this offense is, and how healthy they can get with some key guys down the stretch just lets you know that they're in a good place, regardless of what did or did not happen at the trade deadline for them. You know, really, nobody else in the National League East got markedly better. The Marlins did some buying. That's in and of itself fascinating. We'll get into that later. The New York Mets were sellers. I don't think we had that on our bingo card back in April, particularly two Hall of Famers that they're paying to pitch somewhere else in Texas. It's just a crazy deadline. But the Braves overall, they need to get a little bit of consistency going here, I think, in the second half. And we're going to get into a lot of the things that, you know, maybe in this weekend series against the Chicago Cubs that are a little bit troubling. I mean, a bad start from Charlie Morton, a bad start from Bryce Elder. You know, if you can find ways to work around that with your offense, you know, that's a plus. But you drop two out of three in the series, you know, there's going to be some frustration rolling into that next series where you got to get right in Pittsburgh to continue on this road trip. The base running, I think, has been problematic for this club at times. We saw it again on Sunday. There was some bad base running, some guys getting too far off of base, maybe getting a little aggressive with some of the sins for some runners to home. Uh, but the Braves are an aggressive club. I'm not necessarily going to get on them about being aggressive, but I would like it to be a calculated risk because you can take risks. you got to make a team execute every once in a while. That's okay. But you know, fly ball to center field, you get caught so far off of first base, you've rounded second and you get doubled off, it just short circuits the whole inning. That kind of thing we saw again on Sunday. And there's just been a little bit too much of that. And obviously the fielding has been not to the level that the Braves needed to be at. And there was a perfect example of that. And, you know, Matt Olson has had a handful of these this year where I just feel like he's ready to make a play before the ball gets there. And in the first inning for Bryce Elder, yes, I know, back-to-back walks to start the game. But that error really opened the door for a more stressful inning. Cubs hit a couple of home runs, score five times, win that game. And the Cubs were able to come back and get the runs that they needed to against Charlie Morton and win the finale on Sunday, take two out of three in that series. But the Braves, they had opportunities that were out there. And I think tightening up and getting a little bit more consistent on some of those things will go a long way towards helping this club get back to who and what it is and what it does best, which is winning. But they're going to need to go ahead and get that thing done. And this road trip would be a fine time to do some of that fine-tuning, especially when you feel like you are starting to get healthier with that return of Max Freed. 
So a whole lot of things to talk about as we continue on in the show. A good homestand for the Braves, taking five out of six. Rocky started this road trip, though, by dropping two out of three to the Chicago Cubs. Uh, when we come back, though, we'll get all into the return of Max Freed. What's going on with Bryce Elder and some other things happening for the Braves pitching staff as we get into the week that was for the Atlanta Braves this week in Braves baseball. It's coming your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. It is a Sunday afternoon, evening, I guess, at this point, as you're listening live right here on 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios, as a matter of fact. And we wrap up a weekend that was disappointing, most certainly for the Atlanta Braves, and losing two out of three to the Chicago Cubs in two games in the second and third contests that were winnable for the Braves. They scored six runs in that second game. Unfortunately, a five-run first inning against Bryce Elder really sunk them there. And then in the second contest, or excuse me, the finale of the series after losing that second contest, it was just a day where the Braves couldn't seem to get the outs when they needed to. I felt like they made some, I don't know if uncharacteristic mistakes is fair to even call it at this point, because again, there were some base running mistakes that were made there, but the offense was not able to overcome. And for Charlie Morton, it's been a real grind of late. We're going to get all into the starting rotation here in this segment because I felt like this is a good place to go because a lot of people have been talking about it based on both the good news, which we'll start with. I always like to start with the good news. And then we'll get into the stuff that's not so good or not so fun. And that, of course, was what happened to Bryce Elder and Charlie Morton the last couple of days. But opening up this series with Max Freed back on the mound is something that the Braves have been waiting for for just over three months. It was 91 days between starts for Max Freed. Last one was the 5th of May. And it was just his fifth start of the season. And that just kind of underscores like, what the Braves are doing this year. is pretty ridiculous. First team to 70 wins. And they get exactly five starts out of their ace starting pitcher. And a guy that won 21 games for him last year. They've also gotten only five starts out of him. And I'll get to Kyle Wright in a moment. But getting Max Freed back was, I think, one of the first, you know, and in lockstep with the trade deadline, of course, where you wanted to at least, I think, solve some depth issues in your bullpen, which I think the Braves did. You needed to get your rotation looking a little bit more formidable heading towards October. And clearly for... The Braves, there's no better way, I felt like, to improve that rotation than by getting Max Freed back at the top of it. And he was great against Chicago. I think even surprised himself and how good he was against the Cubs. Six innings of shutout ball, three hits, no walks, and eight strikeouts for Max Freed, who needed just 72 pitches to befuddle the Cubs hitters. And he seemed to be the only Brave starter who was befuddling Cubs hitters for very long. And and it's just it goes to be a testament to Max Freed and what he's been able to do over the last few years and turning himself to the kind of ace that is able to go out and just stifle a lineup and get the Braves a win and you know get them into a series on the right foot. And I think that Max Freed's presence is going to make this rotation feel a little bit more comfortable going forward. But you know it's one guy. It is one start. And going forward, you need to see a lot more of it, and you're going to need to see some adjustments by a couple of other players. But let's hear a little bit from Max Freed, who was in action for the first time in three months, and went out and just faced the Chicago Cubs like not a day had passed since the last time he had pitched. Here's Max Freed describing what he thought of his results and his ability to execute in his first start back. I felt sharper than expected. I you know, had a, you know, a lot of nervous energy, just was looking forward to this day for a long time. Uh, really just tried to simplify it and just tried to keep us in it as long as we can and just try to win. These guys have been doing so good for so long that – I just kind of wanted to try to seamlessly fit in and just, you know, not try to mess anything up. Now, I would say that Max Free didn't mess anything up. In fact, he gave the Braves the start that they needed to open up this series. Just unfortunately, 
things after that got a little bit messed up, a little bit muddled in the second and third games of the series. But for Freed, it's everything you could have asked for and more. I know that Brian Snitker also spoke after the game uh, on Friday and said, look, I did not expect that, but I'm not surprised by that based on the kind of work and preparation that Max Freed has put into this return and, of course, every start, every time he takes the mound for the Atlanta Braves. But it was a very lengthy time away from baseball for Max Freed from pitching every fifth day, let me put it that way. So I was interested to hear how he described what he was doing over the course of that long stint on the 60-day IL to get himself back into form to jump back in the Braves rotation. You know, I've, I've worked really hard with, uh, you know, just fine-tuning things and just being better with uh, my mechanics and timing and rhythm and kind of all that. So when you have a lot of time in season to, to work on those things, it, you know, you try to take all that work and put it out there. Well, I can tell you this, you don't want to have all that time in season, but if you are going to have it and you're able to do the kinds of things that Max Freed typically does and the way that he prepares for not just a season but every single start, then you knew he was going to make the most of that time, and he certainly did it. And the execution in the six scoreless innings, that I think is just verification, if you want that, or validation, that you're getting one of the best starters in the National League back. Now, I say one of the best starters in the National League is coming back. He's also joining the best team in the National League and the team with the best record in baseball. And again, it may not feel like that after you lose a tough series to the Cubs over the weekend. I understand that. But you know, this is a club that's in a very good spot and that is getting a lot better with Freed back in rotation. But he watched the team's success and also saw some of the moves that were made to get a little bit of depth to help him realize that his job was just to get back and there's no rush to do it when the team is having that kind of success. Here's Max Freed. A big part of that just allowed, allowed me to not have to rush back or not have to, you know, try to hurry up too quickly. Um, it was very much on my timeline of whenever you know I was feeling good, uh, we, we kind of moved to the next thing. And I think that was really big, and it really helped me have a really good foundation to hopefully go throughout the end of, uh, the, end of the year strong and healthy. And that's going to be the number one thing you want for Max Freed, is to continue on through the end of the year and be healthy and ready to contribute to this club, not only every fifth day, but obviously when you get to October. Because if there was one thing, that really cost the Braves, I think, last year against the Phillies in the NLDS. Yep, yeah, some guys didn't hit. That's certainly true. But you had a sick Max Freed. You had a Spencer Strider who was coming off an oblique injury. Wasn't ideal. And Charlie Morton also got knocked out of a game by taking a line drive. And where have you heard that story before? But it did not end as well this time around in 2022. So hopefully in 2023, you get Max Freed healthy and heading towards that finish line to the regular season and ready to go when it's time for postseason baseball. But the Braves, they dropped two out of three over the weekend to the Cubs in losing on both Saturday and Sunday, but back-to-back wins by the Phillies mean that Atlanta's got a 10-and-a-half game lead in the division at 70-39 and 39 now through 109 games, so 53 of these things left to go. And if the Braves are able to win, what, 30 or so of those final games, they'll find themselves, obviously, by some very simple math, as a 100-win team, and that's a pretty darn good year, as we know, but it's just that first step of getting yourself into October. Now, not all news in the rotation this weekend was good news, unfortunately. As we saw what happened with Bryce Elder and Charlie Morton, they both struggled against the Cubs. Elder has been roughed up uh, perhaps a bit more so than Morton and a bit more so in more alarming fashion because unlike Charlie Morton, Bryce Elder, when he gets hit, he doesn't miss very many bats, so he doesn't really have that ability where you feel like, okay, well, if he can just really nail it down here and get a big strikeout, he maybe could get out of this jam. I think that's just not quite the style that Bryce Elder pitches. But he has made some big pitches throughout the course of the year. They just haven't been showing up with the same frequency in the last, what, five or so weeks. As you look at Elder's start against the Cubs, seven runs allowed yet again, couldn't get out of the fifth inning. 
and it's been seven runs allowed in three of his last five starts, but he was coming off back-to-back quality starts, very good starts against the Milwaukee Brewers, so you thought maybe he had been able to right the ship, but it's going to kind of be a little bit of back to the drawing board. And I mentioned a little bit earlier in the show, the error by Matt Olson did not help that first inning. Back-to-back walks by Bryce Elder did not help start that inning, and the two home runs the Chicago Cubs hit in that frame, including one by Dansby Swanson, did not help Bryce Elder's cause there as well. Let's hear a little bit from the Braves' all-star. Yeah, he was an all-star. And, yes, he had a pretty good run going through the first three months of the season and really beyond that because it dated back to the second half of 2022 on what exactly for Bryce Elder he feels like went wrong in this start against Chicago. And then we'll go a little bit more big picture. But here's Elder after Saturday's loss. Glad I beat myself today. Um, I knew that if I could keep it close, we are going to have a chance. And obviously, you know, at the end, that's what happens. But um, just, you know, the leadoff walk to Bellinger, too, just – can't expect that to happen and have, really have a good chance to win, so it's on me. That's one thing I will tell you about Bryce Elder that has been, I don't know, refreshing or just encouraging when you talk about a young pitcher who was, and let's set our expectations properly, was expected to compete for the fifth starter spot in the Braves rotation in spring training. What he has done has been far and away more than you expect out of the fifth starter of the rotation, and it has been both much needed and out of necessity for the Braves for him to get them to this point, and I think that he can still make some contributions moving forward, but clearly there are some adjustments to be made. And for Bryce Elder, to go back to that accountability portion of this, he doesn't really put it off on anybody else. I mean, that error by Matt Olson did not help that inning. The Braves ended up allowing an Elder, ended up allowing two unearned runs. Well, the Cubs won 8-6, to six, so clearly that error played a factor well beyond just what was going on with Bryce Elder. But you're not going to hear him look for other reasons why they lost. Those walks were something that paved the way for the Cubs to create some big innings and obviously some separation with the Braves with five runs in the first there. But as I mentioned, it's been a struggle. That final start before the All-Star break, he got knocked around by the Tampa Bay Rays. Then he came out and got knocked around in that first start out of the All-Star break. Kind of righted the ship. Now another bad one against the Cubs. So where exactly does Bryce Elder feel like he is at this point in the season? He discussed that after Saturday's game as well. I still am pleased with how I'm throwing it. Um, I think, like I said, the, the walks, just, I beat myself today. But I'm not, I mean, there was a couple starts where it was just kind of like, oh, I don't. I didn't know really the direction I was going, but I, I you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to say I was pleased with it because I wasn't at all. But it was just like I know I'm still on pace, so you know, I just get ready to go next week, and obviously don't try not to beat myself next week. We'll be all right. And I do think that you have to kind of have that mentality over the course of a long season. He's going to have to put each start behind him that is not a good one, obviously, and concentrate on what he can do to improve. And I think he's capable of doing that. But the Braves are seeing. You know, the struggles of Bryce Elder are coinciding now with some struggles from Charlie Morton, who's the veteran of this staff, and who for about five or six weeks was really one of the big keys to the Braves' success as they made that incredible run through the month of June and into July. It really felt like Charlie was kind of coming into his own. The strikeout started to show up at a, at a higher rate. I mean, the velocity's good, the stuff's good, the spin rate on the curveball is good. I mean, these are all things that should be working in Charlie Morton's favor. But as I mentioned on Twitter, or X, whatever we're calling it these days, again, at Grant McCauley is where you can find me. This starts for Charlie Morton just feel like a grind. He runs into a trouble inning, and even with his stuff, he loses command and location. And in losing command and location, you have the kind of line that he had against Chicago on Sunday. Four and a third innings, five runs all earned, four hits, four walks. Only four strikeouts as well. So he wasn't able to get the big punch outs that he needed. Uh, clearly ran into some trouble, and some of it self-inflicted with those four walks. And you know, that, I think, has been as much as anything for Charlie Morton. And, you know, if you've ever heard from Charlie Morton, which, you know, he's one of the most, I think, thoughtful players I have ever, you know, A, talked to or B, heard from, 
after any game, you know, he's well aware of this, but I, how do you adjust it? How do you figure these things out? Max Fried kind of mentioned, you know, if you've got all this time during the season to work on something, you will. Well, not everybody's going to have that. And again, it's not ideal to take 90 days off in the middle of the season to go ahead and work on some command issues if you're one of the guys that needs to be going every fifth day for this Braves club. So clearly, you know, that's not an option and not something he's thinking of. He's not trying to find ways out of it, but you got to try to find a way through it. And I think for Charlie Morton, he's done it for a long time in his career, but it does feel like he runs into trouble. The command is at the root of all of that. And with his stuff, I don't know. I'm just kind of feeling like maybe he's working the problem in a way where it's almost counterintuitive at times. But, you know, if it's as simple as telling somebody to, hey, go throw strikes, there'd be a lot of people that turn their careers around very quickly over the course of the history of Major League Baseball. It just doesn't work that simply. But Charlie has been enigmatic, I'll put it that way. And unlike Bryce Elder, with Charlie's weapons, with that curveball, with that fastball, you would think that he would be able to get some of those strikeouts that he needs to get out of some of these jams, but it's not happening enough lately. He has been bit by the long ball. That wasn't the case on Sunday, but the base runners piled up and the game got away from him. And unfortunately for the Braves, the offense is not going to be able to bail you out each and every single time. But for the veteran Charlie Morton, his last four starts have been uh, baffling at times in terms of just losing his command and running into a beginning and ultimately, it's not been able to give the Braves what they need to win these baseball games. He has lost his last four starts. The Braves have 19 and two-thirds innings, 22 hits, 16 earned runs, 15 walks, and 17 strikeouts. Far too many hits, far too many walks. That's a big problem for him. So I want to hear from Charlie Morton talking about what went wrong on Sunday, and then we'll hear a little bit more about maybe what hasn't been going right for him for a little while. Here's Charlie Morton following the loss to Chicago. I don't know. I mean, I felt like my stuff coming into the game was good my fastball was there and mm-hmm. um pretty good fastball command and i just lost command you know third mm-hmm. inning was just a struggle to to feel my pitches i didn't you know i wasn't executing really much of anything you know i had i threw a ton of pitches in the third and you know it's the same story it's like a, an inning where i just throw way too many pitches yeah. and lose feel for the ball and i think he was losing feel a couple of different times in this start the third inning in particular and then obviously that's going to compound because the more pitches you have to throw in that frame the more stressful those innings are the longer that you're out there it's just going to cost you those valuable bullets that you need later in the game and again it feels like every start for him has been such a grind he can't find that i don't know if it's a release point thing i don't know if it's just a command thing his pitches are just not moving the way that he wants them to Maybe they're moving too much. Sometimes that's the case, but whatever it is, Charlie Morton needs to find a way to correct that and get back on track. He's done it over the course of his career, but it does feel like, you know, this stretch, and there were a couple of stretches I feel like in 2022, at least in the first half there were, where he was really just kind of searching for answers. But here's what Morton had to say about how things are trending for him right now and maybe what's ahead for him, what he needs to clean up to get back on track. Nobody wants to go out and give up runs at any point. I think, you know, there are times where you might be a little more aggressive in the zone if you have a big lead or something like that. But, uh, I mean, my motivations don't change depending on if we score runs or not. I just don't want to give up runs, and I did. That was more of just not executing pitches. My breaking ball just, you know, today just my breaking ball wasn't... I mean, those locations, I mean, I feel like some of those locations were where I gave up hits on my breaking ball. They're fine. I mean, they're not perfect, but they're fine. And usually, if I'm in the bottom third of the zone, my breaking ball against lefties, I'm going to be okay. And today, I just gave up a few hits down there. Um, you know, I hung a, a change up to Hap. I don't think that was the worst pitch I've ever thrown. But I, you know, it's just like timely hits and, and lots of walks. And you know, I just feel really bad about that. I just feel like it's just a sloppy outing. And 
It's like I came out of the break. I felt like I was in a pretty good spot. I had that start against the White Sox. I threw the ball really well. And then since then, you know, since after that first start after the break, I just feel like it's hit or miss. And um, I just threw the ball really poorly today. Unfortunately, there's been a little bit too much hit and not enough miss for Charlie Morton out there. And you heard him kind of size it up. I mean, batted ball luck is going to be a play for every single pitcher. I mean, not every pitch that you give up a hit on is the worst one that you've thrown. But uh, to that effect, you also can't compound things by putting too many guys on with the free passes. And I think that if it gets eliminated, all of a sudden you're going to have Charlie Morton maybe trending back in the right direction. The Braves certainly need him to. They're not in dire straits by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you look at the race in the National League East, and it's a double-digit lead. The Braves have the best record in baseball, but they're not going to go in and look at that every time something goes wrong, and fans are certainly not going to just chalk up every loss to, oh, well, you'll get them next time. You do want to see certain things that look like trends, and for Charlie, it's been a trend for a while. You know, just get right and get a good outing and have things kind of turn back around and make those adjustments that can help you feel good about where you are and, of course, get you exactly how you want to feel when you're going into the biggest games that you're going to play, and that, of course, will be happening in October. A little bit of other Braves pitching staff news before we put a bow on this particular segment and move on to discussing the trade deadline a little bit more in depth. And, of course, here from Alex Anthopoulos, you know, the Braves' bullpen was a major focus, maybe the focus, of the trade deadline deals that the Braves made. They got Brad Hand, the veteran lefty. They got Pierce Johnson, a righty, who has looked pretty good in his first couple of outings with the Braves, or handful of outings. They come over from the Rockies to help bolster a group at about the same time that A.J. Minter comes back from the injured list. And that is not a small development for the Braves. They need A.J. Minter. They need to team him up with Joe Jimenez, who we're going to get into a little bit later, who has been terrific for this Braves team, and Rysel Iglesias, who I think has looked a lot better. But how are you getting to the 7th, 8th, and ninth innings with a lead? Well, you're going to have to get some better starts, quite obviously. The Braves' offense, I think, has done his part more times than not. But I think having a great bullpen, as we saw, is one of the keys to getting through October with a favorable outcome. The Braves did this about as good or better than anybody else back in 2021, but they are going to have to find a way to kind of normalize things that are going on in their rotation. But Hand and Pierce Johnson, I think, are both going to be pretty helpful. And, oh, by the way, Dylan Lee started his rehab assignment with Gwinnett on Saturday. A score listening for him, I think he might need four or five more of those. But you get Dylan Lee back in this, all of a sudden, this bullpen is going to get a lot more formidable to say nothing about the possibility of throwing Jesse Chavez back in the mix as well. So some good things happening for the Braves staff, even though it may not look like it over the weekend against the Chicago Cubs. When we come back, we'll hear from General Manager Alex Anthopoulos on the trade deadline as From the Diamond continues on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I love baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we wrap up our week and take a look back at some of the big things that have been going on for the Atlanta Braves. They closed out their weekend series with the Cubs, but a long road trip. They're in the midst of that with four games ahead against the Pittsburgh Pirates. But one of the big things that we were looking back on in the week there was is what exactly is going to happen at the Major League Baseball trade deadline. We're going to talk a whole lot about that as the show goes on, most certainly, but I think we have to kind of unpack what happened and, in some ways, what didn't happen for the Atlanta Braves at the trade deadline. We saw veteran reliever Brad Hand as the only day of deal for Atlanta, but there were some moves that were made in the week or so leading up to that, including the first trade with the Rockies, which is where Brad Hand eventually came from, that brought over Pierce Johnson. You also had the addition of Nicky Lopez, the infielder from the Royals, to help kind of round out the Atlanta bench, but no big blockbuster move. Now, there were a few of those across baseball, and I do think that if the Braves could have found the piece that just made the most sense with a deal that they couldn't say no to, 
there's a very good chance that something big could have happened. But of course, that's all hindsight. And we know what did happen. And that's what we're going to focus on. But uh, as the Atlanta Braves were coming into the trade deadline, I felt like they were in such a unique position because they were in a place that many clubs would love to be in. Number one, you got the best record in baseball. Number two, you've got a huge divisional lead. That's always helpful if you're looking to get into October, which the Braves most certainly are. But I'm talking more so about all of the players who were available to the Braves to come back and help out, in particular, the pitching staff. We saw Max Fried and his return against the Chicago Cubs on Friday. And if you weren't encouraged by that, after the long wait, nearly three months to get Fried back on a mound, well, then I don't know what gets you excited about Atlanta Braves baseball. Max Fried, as we talked about earlier in the show, he was magnificent. And hopefully down the stretch, you've got a gassed up Max Fried who hasn't had to endure the last three months of just the overall usage on his arm, has been able to rest, get healthy, and now can throw some of his biggest and most important innings a little bit fresher than maybe he would have been over the course of a four, five, six-month run across the regular season before you even get into October. That aside, though, Freed's return is not the only one that was going to be a factor for the Braves. You knew that at some point you were going to get healthy in the bullpen with some guys who are missing out there. A.J. Mentor has come off the injured list. Dylan Lee is out on a rehab assignment. And you're going to hopefully get Kyle Wright back at some point in September, and perhaps Jesse Chavez before then. In other words, the Braves had so many returns that you had to kind of factor that in when you started doing the math on what your 26-man roster was going to look like. If you go out and make two, three, four trades, well, that's fine. Then you have a whole bunch of players coming back off the injured list. You're going to have to account for them as well. And I think that that was part of what Alex Anthopoulos and his group was looking to do as they scoured the landscape to try to find the right deals for the Braves, the right fits, and also keep in mind how good is this club as currently comprised and how much better will they be with the players that come back from the injured list. I know that's the kind of what if. A lot of Braves fans, I'm sure, don't want to necessarily hear as plan A if all of our injured guys come back and are healthy, but the Braves are not really doing this as just a matter of guesswork. They have their medical staff in lockstep with these pitchers to figure out when they're going to come back, at what level they're going to come back, and if they weren't able to or weren't to a certain level, that would change the way that the Braves pursued pitching help at the trade deadline. So that's kind of how I size it up from 30,000 feet, looking at what the club needs and what the club was able to get. But why not hear from Alex Anthopoulos himself? The Braves general manager was right here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game this past week talking to Carl Dukes and Mike Bell and giving them some insight on how exactly the trade deadline went. So let's hear a little bit of Alex Anthopoulos' visit with Carl and Mike and in particular how the Braves general manager was looking at the trade deadline in the lead up and of course right afterwards when the time to make deals was done. We already have a, a really good club. We've gotten off to a nice two-thirds of a season and, and all that. And, look, we had to wait. We can only carry 26 guys on the roster, and guys are coming back. So Freed will be back. Dylan Lee starting a rehab assignment. And, you know, Chavez and Kyle Wright, we don't believe, are far behind. So, you know, we had to be careful tonight. You can't go get five, six guys, and then all of a sudden you have to release guys. So uh, we had to weigh all that. Now, look, if we can get an impact starter, we were going to do it. If we can get an impact reliever, you know, a late-inning guy, you know, slam the door, we were going to do that. And we pursued some of those things. Look, obviously we didn't get those done, but – um, we had the players to do it, and we had mm. proposals on the table. And if we said yes, we'd have those guys. So, you know, we ultimately chose to walk away. But we do like our club, and we like what we have. And, you know, you, you always come away from trade deadline. You do what you can, trying to manage short-term and long-term. 
So the only day of deal that the Braves ended up making was picking up veteran left-hander Brad Hand from the Colorado Rockies. As we talked about, this is another left-handed option that can help out the Braves from a depth perspective and somebody who's got an awful lot of experience as well. Both of those things are important, and the Braves could use the help, honestly, in the bullpen that has been so taxed and looking for answers as it awaits a few guys to get healthy. Here's what Alex Anthopoulos told Carla Mike about the addition of Brad Hand and how he fits into Atlanta's bullpen, both at the moment and moving forward. Obviously, we have A.J. back from the left side. Hey, look, he's not just a left-handed reliever, right? He's a guy that could pitch late innings, pitch the eighth, close at times if needed, and all those things. So, you know, we've been going without left-handers in the bullpen for a while. Dylan Lee's been out for a while. But, you know, we still want to have that depth. And once Dylan Lee comes back, now you have A.J., you have Dylan Lee. Those are the one-two. Then Brad Hand is a third option. You know, he does get a lot of strikeouts against left-handers. And, look, he's had experience as a closer and so on. But the way our bullpen lines up and the way we have it is having three guys there from the left side is pretty exciting. So it allows Snit if he needs to go to the bullpen early in the fifth or the sixth, he can fire Brad at that, that time and still save Dylan. And AJ, if those guys are down, you know, we're, if we have an eight-game stretch in a row, ten-game stretch in a row, and they need days off, it's nice to have another left-hander that can get swing and miss from the left side. So, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but you know, the ability to get swing and miss is a big deal, especially when you get to the playoffs, and especially if you can line up right-left and. That's what we liked about Pierce Johnson. That's certainly what we liked about Brad Hand. Now, it felt like the Braves were going to go out and target relief pitching in the lead-up to the trade deadline. They went out and got Pierce Johnson, who's a guy that can pick up a lot of strikeouts from the Rockies, but it had some ups and downs over the course of the season. In the short bursts that we've seen, he's looked pretty good, and I think he's fit in nicely. And it may not be the biggest name, but the Braves are out there looking for guys who can be effective regardless of that, and it's kind of where your scouting comes in to help you out to identify some candidates that you can get to jump into the bullpen mix in this case and be able to do the job. Now, Brad Hand is another piece that can fit into there, and A.J. Minter's return from the injured list, clearly another important piece, and that's in advance of Dylan Lee beginning that rehab assignment in which he tossed a scoreless inning for Gwinnett on Saturday and getting Jesse Chavez back in the mix perhaps in the next few weeks as well. The Braves' bullpen appears to be in a good place now and could be in a very good place heading through August and into September. Now, the pitching staff is more than just the bullpen, although that seems to be the group we've talked about the most all season long. We've also seen what the Braves' starting rotation is and is not at times as well. You look at the bulk of this season, with Max Fried spending two stints on the injured list and with Kyle Wright also unavailable with two stints on the IL for him as well, what had to happen in order for the Braves to come into this weekend with the best record in Major League Baseball, and it's not particularly close. Well, you had to get something big out of Spencer Strider, and I feel like you've gotten that. And then you had to get other guys to step up. Bryce Elder, certainly one of those. You needed Charlie Morton to be able to at least help stabilize the Atlanta rotation, and I feel like more times than not, he has done that. Even if he's not quite the same pitcher that he was a couple of years ago, it's serviceable. But what of the other two spots in rotation? How are you going to fill those down the stretch? You could go out and make a trade or two. The Braves, though, chose not to do that because of the return of Max Freed, which, as we've documented at this point in the show, was extremely good. Maybe even surprised Freed himself, exactly how sharp he was against the Cubs on Friday. That, however, is only one pitcher, and it's only one start. But you have Kyle Wright also working towards a return to the Atlanta rotation. Let's hear from Alex Anthopoulos on his thoughts of the Braves' starting five, both at the moment with Freed back in the saddle, what the Braves were looking at around the trade deadline, and what the return of Wright in a few weeks means to Atlanta's starting staff. Let's go through the five. Obviously, okay. Charlie's right. had good numbers. Bryce Elder's been an all-star Freed. Cy Young candidate. 
you got a guy who won 21 games with really good stuff who was fantastic in the postseason last year and in the World Series in 21. And you're talking about right now him slotting in as your fifth starter. So, you know, my view of the postseason is you need at least three starters, okay. ideally four. But if you have three, you're good. But you need three, three real guys, in my opinion. And four is, is outstanding. But you definitely can do it with three and a strong bullpen and a good offense with power. And I do right. think you feel like you've got five, you've got that protection if things go sideways that you can lose two and still be okay. And that's kind of our thought process. But, look, I don't want to lose two. We're hoping that we have at least four when the time comes. Now, given that you've got Kyle Wright coming back and you've got Max Reed back in your rotation, which already included an all-star in Spencer Strider, a veteran like Charlie Morton, and a pitcher like Bryce Elder, also an all-star, who has been far more good than bad this year, but is going through some ups and downs of his own in his first full season as a big league starter, even with those things, which you know can be questionable at times, the Braves are still in a very good place once they're able to put two of the most important pitchers of their rotation back into place and into that rotation heading into the postseason and being able to backfill with whether it's A.J. Smith-Shawver, Michael Soroka, Yanni Chirinos, whoever it may be, the Braves do have some depth. And depth may not be the most exciting thing, but it's an awfully important thing. Here's Alex Antopoulos discussing with Carl Dukes and Mike Bell on 92.9 The Game here about what it would have taken to get a trade done and what exactly their criteria was for going out and adding that impact starter. There wasn't any uh, issue with lining up with teams or having players. Like, we'll trade players. So we, you know, look, Spencer Strider wasn't ranked in the top 100. We didn't, you know, we didn't get a competition pick for him finishing top two last year as a finalist for rookie of the year so you know we like the player we're trading prospects right. I mean, that's not stopping us there's no like well we're not going to trade guys because we want to replenish or whatever i just being high on the prospect rankings i mean even if you look at when i got here obviously there's a ton of talent but they don't all pan out right so if you look back at where all those guys are ranked some of them have been dfa some of them have been outrighted some have gone on to become stars but no i think it's just player specific so sometimes for us i mean we're looking for a specific type of guy and so on and Sometimes if we feel like, hey, it may not be the best clubhouse fit, we won't do it. But I think for us, it was going to be okay. If we're going to go get a starter, we felt like let's get someone we feel confident is starting a playoff game for us because we do expect Kyle right back. And, you know, you started looking at, okay, these guys are healthy. Who's going to slot in ahead of some of these guys who's starting a playoff game? So if we weren't going to find that, uh, we were probably just going to stand pat and go with what we have. And we have the ability to option guys in and out and so on. And we have Kyle come back. And it all makes a lot of sense. I think the Braves, Alex Antopoulos told us after the trade deadline that, look, the bar for adding to the rotation was very high. If they didn't feel like they could get that deal done and that starting pitcher didn't make sense moving forward, both in the playoff picture and maybe even in terms of years of control, it just didn't sound like a deal that was going to happen for the Braves this time around. Now, a lot of stuff clearly can change over the course of the winter and big trades could be made at that point as well. It's not like the Braves were just sitting around hoarding prospects and just trying to hold on to them. But if the deal doesn't make sense, we've learned, I think, that Alex Anthopoulos is not going to force it and nobody is going to be able to force his hand. Let's talk a little bit about the Braves' offense, which I think one through nine has been, across Major League Baseball, one of, if not the absolute best in the game, and clearly leading the league in home runs, is a pretty good indicator that you're going to be able to score some runs. But it's not the only thing that this offense does really well. Uh, They've cut the strikeouts down from last year at a rate that I just didn't think was going to be possible, but they've done it. They've been able to improve their own base skills, and one through nine in the order, when you're talking about the normal lineup that goes Acuna, Albies, Riley, 
Olsen, whoever's catching that day, Sean Murphy or Travis Darno, Marcelo Zuna, Eddie Rosario, Orlando Arcia, and Michael Harris. You look up and down that order, and nobody has an OPS under 750. That's pretty impressive. That being said, there were some highs and lows, some streakiness going to be built into the 162, as all nine guys are not going to be going at the exact same time. That top four certainly carries it. Michael Harris II has been on absolute fire for the last two months and is helping in the nine spot of the order. But in between there, there was a little bit of streakiness, particularly for Marcelo Zuna and for Eddie Rosario. Alex Antopoulos discussed the idea about potential upgrade in left field or DH or just flat out another middle-of-the-order hitter who could help the Braves out and what the search for that was like. Look, obviously those guys in aggregate, you look at their numbers, they got good numbers, right? OPS is in the mid-700, good power numbers. At the end of the year, I think they'll have good numbers, good performance. But look, they've been streaking. They've had, obviously, Ozuna started off really rough and got really hot. And then, you know, he has, and it's, look, no players go through stretches where, unless they're Hall of Famers or winning MVPs, are going six months wire to wire where they don't, they don't end up slowing down. These guys, over the course of six months, it's going to happen. They're going to slow down. They're going to fall off. And that's just reality. And I understand as a fan base, we're going to react all of a sudden. Guys aren't hitting or guys aren't having good starts. We need to do something. So it's our job to try to stay even keel and try to decide, is this a short-term thing or is this a concern that we need to address? And look, we're happy with those guys from the left side. Even Pilar coming in as a platoon guy helps as well. We were focused on impact frontline starter and impact late-inning arm in the bullpen. That was the focus. And obviously bench. But that's where we really spent the majority of our time. And I'd say... Maybe a day before the trade deadline, two days before the trade deadline, we just realized we weren't getting there. We were having a hard time. We were running up against walls. We kind of shifted and said, what if there's a big-time middle-of-the-order bat that we can get? It's not something we plan to do, but that would make the club better. Why don't we just score more runs and get better that way? So we explored some of those things. Uh, Obviously, we didn't get it done, but there's a lot of ways to, to get better. And look, the bottom line is you just need to score more runs than the other team. That might be three to one. That could be 10, 10 to six. So... If we can't get the reliever, we can't get the starter, let's go try to get a middle-of-the-order bat, and we did go down that path. That's some insight from Braves General Manager Alex Anthopoulos, who joined Carl Dukes and Mike Bell. Make sure you listen to the whole interview. You can find it on the Odyssey app, and you can hear me joining Carl and Mike on Braves game days throughout the week, Monday through Friday, right here on 92.9 The Game. When we come back, we will take our look around the big leagues, talk about some other trade deadline news and notes from beyond the Atlanta Braves sphere, and we'll do it next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. We're live from the Kia Studios in Midtown as we wrap up the week that was of course, for the Atlanta Braves and uh, take a big look at what was happening around the world of baseball as the trade deadline is always going to be at top of mind, I think. But we needed a bit of an undercard, I felt, for this trip around the big leagues. So I've done some other research based on the events of this weekend and found just the fight. And no, we're not going to talk about SummerSlam for the next hour, but we are going to talk about the SummerSlam match that took place between the Cleveland Guardians and the Chicago White Sox, a truly Odd scenario that was happening uh, up in Cleveland. And, you know, these are two teams, and you got to think about it, divisional rivals. I know this is not the hottest division race, and the White Sox, well, they were just doing a lot of selling at the trade deadline, so I wouldn't expect them to be in the midst of this race, but they are going to have to play out the string, and they were playing out the string against the Cleveland Guardians last night, and things, uh, well, it got a little bit heated, and it happened between two of the more noteworthy players for both these clubs, 
When you think of the Guardians, I don't know that anybody's name springs to mind quicker than Jose Ramirez. I mean, unlike a lot of the players that Cleveland has had that have ended up being traded over the past few years, Ramirez signed a nice long extension because he wanted to stay in Cleveland, and he is one of the better, if not more underrated sluggers in all of baseball as well. Well, he decided that uh, he had had about enough of Tim Anderson of the Chicago White Sox based on, I think, last night's events and other events that go well beyond Saturday. But take a listen to the play, and then we'll get into the breakdown and the post-fight reactions that we need to get into. But here's what went on between Jose Ramirez and Tim Anderson last night. Hard hit ground ball. Fair down the first baseline. Jimenez will score. Jose on his way to second. The throw by Colas, not in time. Jose right between the legs of Tim Anderson. He's in there safely. And he's not real happy with Tim Anderson. Well, both benches are empty. And Anderson took a right-hand swing at Ramirez. And this is going to turn into quite a melee. Cooler heads prevail and pull the two combatants apart quickly. But Tim Anderson just took a shot at the most popular man in Cleveland. I think that's a pretty good call. I mean, the crowd was certainly into it. And again, it's been a long summer, obviously, for the White Sox. And the Guardians have had their own fair share of ups and downs. But they are still in the race and trying to make a run of it here. But putting all of that aside, I mean, clearly, these are two teams that may have some combatants, well, some players that just don't like each other. And that was pretty apparent as it stemmed from that altercation between Guardians third baseman Jose Ramirez and White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson. Ramirez was sliding into second on a double just to paint all this because radio, you know, we do a great job of painting pictures, but the pictures really tell you the whole story here because something clearly was said or had already been brewing between these two guys before what was happening. But a slide into second base for that double, a tag that was applied, and then the two of them just got up and squared off against one another. And you saw Anderson take his glove off and immediately, like a vaudeville star, he just put up his dukes, immediately challenging Ramirez to this fight. Uh, Ramirez dropped Anderson, though, with a right hand. So he went straight back onto his backside around second base. There was chaos. I mean, clearly the managers are going to come out and they're going to argue there were ejections and all of the usual stuff. The bullpens cleared out because... You know, nothing says a huge fight like guys having to run 200 and something feet to stand around out there as everything gets broken up. But that did, of course, happen. But Jose Ramirez explained after the game what led up to the fight. He said, quote, I think he's been disrespecting the game for a while. It's not just today or from before. I even had a chance to tell him that during the game, don't do that stuff. Just stay respectful and don't start tagging people like that. Now, there was a tag play that had happened the night before on Friday night where Anderson pushed the Guardians rookie uh, Brian Rocchio's hand off the bag and tagged him out at second base. Initially, he was safe, but they did a replay review, which, and this is exactly why replay was invented, let me just tell you, and we saw that he was called out after that. But it was one of those plays where, and I hate to invoke terrible memories on this show that's supposed to be you know, more or less a fun discussion about baseball for a couple of hours, but it felt very Kent Herbeck, Ron Gant-esque, where it's just that's not the spirit of the play. That's not the runner's momentum. That's just picking up somebody and tagging him out, and I'm not sure that that's in the baseball rule book, but we'll put that aside and not spend any more time on it. But a lot of things that kind of led into it, and uh, Jose Ramirez won the fight against Tim Anderson, but a lot of chaos, six total ejections, including obviously Anderson and Ramirez. Terry Francona was asked about this thing afterwards, and if you've known Terry Francona or heard of uh, some of the things that he has said over the years and the very wry sense of humor that he has, uh, he was asked to size up the fight and, in particular, the punch that led to all those ejections. Here's what Terry Francona had to say. What do you think of uh, Jose's left hook? 
right hook. Right hook. Right. Let's get it right. You know, it's not. It, it's really. It's not funny. But when I came in, I'm listening to Hammy. It's hard not to chuckle. I mean, it's. But you know, again, it's not funny. But boys will be boys. Well, boys were most certainly boys during last night's Guardians-White Sox altercation. So that I thought was a good, I don't know if palate cleanser is the right word, because we're going to talk a lot about the trade deadline, and we're about to get into a pretty heavy on the Mets side of things. And Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletics is going to join me in just a little while here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game as we talk about some of the big ramifications of this trade deadline. And I, I don't really know what to tell you if you thought that the Mets and Braves were about to have a rematch of their 2022 because I certainly did, and I'm very surprised that by the All-Star break, that rivalry was done. That rivalry was really buried in the month of June, and the last gasp of it pretty much boiled down to a home run by Pete Alonso off Bryce Elder, and then at that point, the beatdown was on for the Braves against pretty much everybody in the month of June, and they flat-out ran away from the Mets and the rest of the National League East. But that led to a series of events that are equally surprising as the rivalry between Atlanta and New York not really paying off this year. Who had the New York Mets as sellers at the trade deadline? I also did not have that one on my bingo card at the start of the season. But Max Scherzer was very concerned, I think, about what the Mets' chances of winning, not just in 2023, but in the future were after David Robertson was traded away well prior to the deadline. So, at that point, discussions, I guess, had to be had between Scherzer and the Mets to get a little bit of a clarification on what exactly the Mets are planning to do. Now, this preceded a trade of Max Scherzer to the Texas Rangers and a trade of Justin Verlander to the Houston Astros not long after that. But I thought that Scherzer's comments on all of this, his explanation of what he was told by Mets Brass and GM Billy Epler, were fascinating. So I want you to hear what Max Scherzer had to say, how he sized up that trade, and then we'll hear from Billy Epler, who, of course, wanted a chance to redirect. The team is now kind of shifting vision and, and that they're looking to compete uh, now for 2025 and 2026. And that, you know, 2024, it was not going to be a reload situation uh, in New York and that it was going to be more of a transition in 2024 and that they're, you know, we're looking to, you know, make decisions uh, to compete outside my contract window. I said, okay, you know, that's a, you know, brand new, <laughs> brand news to me. Um, different than what I'd ever heard out of Steve's mouth. I was like, all right, I got to hear this directly from Steve. So I had a phone call with Steve, and he basically articulated the same uh, vantage point, that that was the new vision for the Mets. Uh, That was the new timeline that they were identifying, and that, you know, players that were under contract for next year, that they could be potentially sold off at the deadline right now, and that the team could be really flipped around at the deadline, you know, as we speak. Uh, and so once it became you know, official, that's the vision for the Mets, then I said, yes, I'd, I will waive my no-trade clause underneath those, under, underneath those pretenses. Well, obviously those pretenses, as Max Scherzer pointed out, were that you know, he signed a huge contract with the Mets to do some winning, and now the Mets don't feel like that winning obviously happened this year or that it could really happen next year as they are currently constructed. And that is quite a development, and that obviously led to the trade of Scherzer and of co-ace Justin Verlander. And both of these guys, I mean, let's just point it out, are probably heading to the Hall of Fame, but neither of these guys are in the midst of their career where they have a whole lot of years to figure out if the team around them is going to be rebuilding. And even with a no-trade clause, I mean, you go ahead and tell somebody we're not planning to do any winning as long as you're signed here. Well, that no-trade clause has a funny way of being waived so that you can get out of town and get into a more favorable spot, which the Texas Rangers most certainly represent for Scherzer, who just turned 39 years old. He won his first start with Texas, and 
you know, as he addressed reporters and obviously laid out, you know, what exactly was going on that led up to that trade, you have to keep in mind in the background of all of that, if you watch the lockout coverage as much as I did, and gosh, what exciting stuff that was, Max Scherzer is a very big and central figure with the Players Association. So this kind of thing, probably not going to go over too incredibly well. Sign a huge contract. We've got promises. We've got ideas. We've got obviously goals of competing and and winning with the team with the biggest payroll in the history of the sport. And it lasts about seven or eight months before the whole thing is starting to get torn down, or at least large portions of it are starting to get torn down and pawned off because $35 million went to the Texas Rangers along with Max Scherzer in that trade. But let's hear from Mets General Manager Billy Epler as he was talking about, you know, what exactly the Mets side of this is. As you heard from Max Scherzer, not only did he talk to Epler, but he also heard from Steve Cohen, who's the man writing the checks for all of this. But here's Billy Epler explaining what the Mets' stance is going forward and why that led to a trade of Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. So I'm not going to go into details. You know, I think I, you know, said this after we ended up moving Max that, you know, any of the conversations I had with him, you know, leading into his last start as a Met um, and then any conversations that I'd had after, I, I just, you know, want to kind of honor those conversations that we had. And I, I don't really want to talk about them publicly. But, uh, you know, I know I did state with a lot of you when we were talking about it that, you know, going into 2024, that we wouldn't have the same odds we did maybe going into 2022 or 2023, you know, kind of looking at like the the preseason odds, whether you want to look at, you know, some of the forecasting, you know, platforms that, that go out and the athletic or fan graphs or baseball prospectus, or even if you want to look at what the, you know, sports books in Vegas are, are saying the major league baseball over-unders are, oh. you know, but I had articulated that that going into 2024, you know, we don't see ourselves that ha- we'll have the same odds that we didn't, in 2022, 2023, but we will field a competitive team. Well, all of that's to say that they hope to be good again next year, but they're not going to guarantee it. And obviously performance on the field can't be guaranteed. And we just saw that by this, I believe, $360 million payroll obligation that Steve Cohen signed up for in 2023. But the Mets, this is going to send a certain message to other future free agents that might be interested in signing there, not the least of which, and this might just be pure fantasy, but I think every fan base should probably spend a little bit of time thinking about how fun it would be to sign Shohei Otani, but I don't think that the Mets, given this series of events, are really going to be putting on the impression to Shohei Otani, who very much, if he's going to leave Los Angeles and move on to another club, given how challenging it's been to win out there, he's going to want to move to more of a sure thing, and the Mets cannot call themselves Anything close to a sure thing since the deadline, they've lost six in a row. Uh, They're 21 games out of first place. They're well out of the wild card. And obviously, by trading off some of your best pieces prior to the deadline, you're not thinking about a wild card run. And even that race is not altogether that favorable to them. So a very strange confluence of events that has brought the New York Mets to where they are now and where they go in the future. Well, that's a whole nother question and a discussion that I might get into with my next guest. Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic is going to join me here on From the Diamond and talk about some of the other ramifications of the trade deadline. Uh, winners, losers, big surprises, all those good things. We'll get into all of it, and we'll do it next right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back into From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios as we turn our attention to one of the biggest stories every baseball season. It's the trade deadline. To help me size up some of the trades across Major League Baseball, I'd like to welcome in Stephen J. Nesbitt of The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter or X if you prefer. At Stephen J. Nesbitt is where you can find him. 
Stephen, appreciate you making some time to join the show. I know that we've talked a little bit about this throughout the course of the season. All of a sudden, stuff just starts to get a, a bit more intriguing in Major League Baseball. It's that long marathon, but I think we're starting to get into that home stretch. And the trade deadline, I've always felt like, is one of the mile markers that people are most definitely paying attention to. Oh, it's certainly. And uh, and the way it sets up now with no waiver trade deadline at the end of August, this is your one chance, your one big shot to do it. And we don't see the urgency ramp up until, you know, a week, usually before the deadline. We had to roll this Chapman traded a month before the deadline. That was really it uh, of consequence. And uh, yeah, all the action happened lately. There was a good bit of action. Some big names uh, traded overall, though. I didn't feel like there were teams moving quite as significantly up and down the projected charts as uh, we get in other trade deadlines, but certainly enough action to keep us busy. Yeah, I mean, there were some headliners, but it wasn't necessarily just a whole card full of stars that was just changing teams day after day after day. And of course, right up until the 6 p.m. deadline, it was a trade deadline, though, that I did think had some intriguing moves, uh, some reunions and clubs that hopefully got better in their hunt for October. So let me kind of start out with what club or clubs surprised you, good or bad, with trades, whether those were coming or going, because I can tell you, when I set out prognosticating uh, what this season was going to look like or predicting what it would look like, I did not have Mets and Cardinals as sellers, Marlins as buyers when we rolled into the trade deadline. How about you? Yeah, another one that surprised me even leading up to the deadline was the Cubs. Now, the thing I always point back to is I was covering the Pirates when they had a hugely hot July and ended up going out and trading for Chris Archer. Mm -hmm. We know how that went. They had just traded Garrett Cole and and Andrew McCutcheon in the offseason wasn't supposed to be a year they went for it and they decided to try to do it with a controllable starter and it went extremely poorly and the Cubs feels a little bit reminiscent of that not saying that they made a trade that was that bad or, or anything but they allowed their hot streak in the middle of July to dictate their trade deadline plans which I think fans appreciate right I don't think they like to see you go eight and two leading up to the deadline and say no no, no we're gonna stick to our plan it's Marcus Stroman Cody Bellinger we're gonna lose them both and so let's trade them but yeah it's a team I had pegged as a seller in the weeks leading up to it and I guess I wasn't certain that they were going to allow themselves to be swayed from seller to buyer, but they were. Now, I'll also say I didn't think they got nearly enough at the deadline. If you're going to be a buyer, things have gone really poorly for that team. Some of the free agent signings they made in the offseason, Bellinger worked out wonderfully, but Jamison Tyone hasn't been that good this season. Mm -hmm. Trey Mancini has been so bad, he's, I believe, now off the roster. So it just felt like a lot of things had to go right for this team, and they haven't really beyond Bellinger. And so to go get Jamer Condelario, the best rental bat on the market, but still it's Jamer Condelario. You're getting him at pretty much his ceiling and you're getting him for two months. I don't think he changes the team's fates. So as soon as I said that, I put them as a, a snoozer, but I almost put him as a loser in the the grades we did. Then they go out and score 36 runs in two days to win a couple <laughs> of games. So so I you know I could be dead wrong on the Cubs, but I still think they have a, a pretty big mountain to climb in the NL Central, yeah. despite the fact that two teams ahead of them didn't do a whole lot either. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what makes it intriguing. If you are the Cubs, and if you were going to maybe take some of the, I don't know what you would call it, the momentum, I guess, of at least going out in the winter and spending and bringing in some players and kind of holding on to those guys, and at least trying to incrementally take that step forward. The central races in both leagues, I mean, nothing has been decided there. I mean, we sit looking at the National League East a lot here down in Atlanta because that's a race that has been very much in the Braves' favor for quite a while because they got so hot and stayed that way for so long and the rest of the division just can't seem to catch up. But the central is a very different story. And of course, the Braves are seeing the Cubs this weekend, a little bit of a uh, a reunion, if you will, with Dansby Swanson, who, of course, a longtime Atlanta Brave now, part of the hopes of the Chicago Cubs of turning that franchise around. Uh, Sticking in the National League East, the New York Mets were a story all throughout the winter. We heard how Steve Cohen and his big spending ways were going to change baseball. He was going to transform what we all thought our expectations of a payroll could be. 
He certainly did that, but I'm not sure that he did it in the way that he wanted to because some of the big money that was spent over the course of the winter, of course, has not paid off throughout the season. And now a couple of those really big spending chips have been shipped off to new cities, both of them in the state of Texas. We'll talk a little bit about Justin Verlander in a moment, but I want to start with Max Scherzer, who was supposed to be a signal of the changing of the fortunes of the New York Mets. They won 101 games last year. I'm not going to say that they didn't do any winning while Scherzer was there, but now we look at it. He shipped off to the Texas Rangers, and we got, I felt like, some of the most interesting comments I have ever heard after a trade. Mets GM Billy Epler indicated to Scherzer, apparently in their discussions, and there's a no-trade clause involved here, the Mets are going to be retooling. They're not really going to be looking to go after it in 2024. Maybe 2025, more likely 2026, I believe. I may be paraphrasing a bit there, but that may be quite a departure from where the Mets really saw themselves, and I don't know what it means for them going forward. What did you make of all of that? Scherzer's comments and the shakeout of the Mets kind of selling off their big arms. Yeah, I mean, there had been smoke there for a couple of weeks, right? That, that Could they trade Verlander? Could they trade Scherzer? Uh, it would have to be a pretty creative deal in that they would have to eat a ton of money. I didn't think they were going to do both of them. But here we are, and they did move both. And the, and the Scherzer one is especially interesting because he had made it clear after as soon as they traded David Robertson and started the sell-off, mm-hmm. Uh, he said, you know, I got to talk to the Mets brass and see what's going on here. And one day later, he's out the door along with $35 million. Uh, Cohen is changing the way owners operate, but in this way, he's changing it as far as the amount of money they're willing to just eat to get rid of Hall of Famers. Like that's yeah. not something the league is, I'm sure, very happy about the way this has transpired, the way he's saying, okay, we've made a mistake going so far in on 23. The players did not live up to their billings. And now we're uh, we're not so confident 2024 is going to be our year. And so, yeah, let's find a way to get out from underneath these. And the way to get out from underneath these was convince these guys to waive their no-trade clauses and get another team, a contender, to pay some of their salaries. But, man, if you look at the other side of this, the Rangers and the Astros, in the other case, not paying a whole lot of money to get these guys. It is truly, you're getting Scherzer at a, a real bargain for the pitcher. I, I believe he still is. He had a two two ninety ERA last year. He got a four zero one so far this year. Um, so it hasn't been vintage, but he certainly still has good stuff. He's going to get swing and misses you know, pretty consistently here. And to get him at a cost of uh, maybe like a Carlos Rodon for next year, right. I feel pretty good about that contract for the Rangers. And uh, to have that ace down the stretch, if they lost Jacob deGrom, they need an Evaldi on the injured list. That's not a bad setup for them now. Mm-hmm. If you get Scherzer, Evaldi, John Gray, Dane Dunning, the, uh, Andrew Heaney, I'm missing somebody else. And I think they got another arm. Yeah, uh, Jordan Montgomery. Yeah, They have a good starting rotation despite not having deGrom and a good move for them, and it comes at a cost of Ronald Acuna's little brother, uh, Luis Angel Acuna, which, hey, this kid could turn out to be great. That's nice, but the Rangers, I think, are taking the opportunity of their competitive window, and, and they don't need another middle infielder right now. You know, they're, they're pretty well set with Corey Seager and, and Simeon for the next, like, 5, 6, 12, 15 years. And so uh, when you're making these deals, it frees you up to make some of these other moves. So I like yeah. that move for the Rangers, certainly. And then for Scherzer to come out and pretty – Baldly say, all right, well, here's the Mets plan. Uh, didn't expect that one either. But this is a guy who's very involved in the, yep. the union. He leads a lot of that stuff. And, and if ownership is going to tell you one thing and operate one way and then things change and you say, can we talk again? And they tell you we're going to go a different direction. I think you're you're allowed to say it, but uh, you're going to make some enemies along the way. And it seemed like Steve Cohen coming out uh, seemed to be walking some of that back a little bit, just saying, yeah, Max, asked, we're going to go all out on free agents. And we said we couldn't commit to that. But uh, it certainly, for me, it takes them out of the Shohei Otani running. You know, they need yeah. someone to pitch some innings next year. You just lost two Hall of Famers. But uh, I don't think Otani's going to sign somewhere that's not immediately ready to go for it. 
Yeah, and, and that is kind of one of the many threads that you can pull out of this whole thing. I mean, A, you've got the Rangers in stark contrast to the Mets. They spent a whole bunch of money, and they seem to be content to spend a whole bunch more. Now, they've had a much better season, and they did need to do something after losing Jacob deGrom to fortify their rotation and get it to the way they need to, and hopefully they get Evaldi back, but they made a couple of moves, so one of them being a Hall of Famer. Meanwhile, I think for the Mets and you know what it means for them in the near future and in the next, what, three or four years, I'm not ready to say that they were going to walk it all the way back and start rebuilding, and I don't think Billy Epler was trying to indicate that, but you know, maybe Steve Cohen got a little bit of the learning curve of, okay, well, I can't outspend everybody, but that does not guarantee on-field performance, and that was yeah. the little caveat that seemed to go whispered in the back of the room, but nobody wanted to hear it up front, and I don't blame Mets fans for it because they're justifiably excited somebody's spending some money on this team, but it did not go according to plan. Chatting with Stephen J. Nesbitt, he's an MLB writer for The Athletic here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. He joins me on the WaitFord.com hotline as we discuss all of the ins and outs, the comings and goings of the Major League Baseball trade deadline, which of course was this past Tuesday. Uh, I mentioned some reunions at the top of our conversation. Justin Verlander, we already brought him up. Back with the Astros after what I'm going to call a brief layover in New York. Uh, I think once Scherzer moved, this felt inevitable, not only that Verlander could be traded and would be traded, but that he was going to go back to Houston. Uh, Steve Cohen lured him away with a very big contract. It was clear, though, that Jim Crane and the Astros would have loved to have had him back. Now they get him back. You talked about you know being able to get him at, I think, a discount. There is the prospect capital, which you don't want to completely dismiss out of yeah. hand. But, man, what a strange ride for Justin Verlander and the Astros to come back together at the trade deadline right after a, an historic winter with Verlander being one of the crown jewels of the Mets' big spending. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is another deal just like the Rangers-Mets deal. It makes sense for both sides if you understand what they're going for. More the Mets say, hey, can we pay half-ish or, or even more of this guy's salary for the, the rest of his contract? Uh, there's a There's a... Uh, uh, an option for 2025 for Verlander that depends on a certain number of innings uh, being hit. Um, but the Mets say, we'll, we'll toss you a bunch of money for this this guy who's going to help you down the stretch. He's still a great pitcher. He's got a three RA, had a Cy Young last year in, in Houston. And in return, we want kind of your best prospects. And so uh, Acuna was the Rangers number three prospect according to MLB pipeline. And in this uh, Verlander deal, uh, along with all that money, uh, the Mets got one of their top outfield prospects now, probably their, t their top outfield prospect, Drew Gilbert, first rounder, um, and Ryan Clifford, who's had a um, pretty incredible year in the minors so far this year. And so, yeah, the Mets are are like beefing up their top 10, top 30 prospects. And it makes sense if that if we know their plan, which thanks to you know, Scherzer, we do kind of know it now. Um, so I think it's a great ad for Houston. I mean, that night, <laughs> the night after the trade, then a frame Valdez goes out and throws a no hitter. Yeah. They've got Valdez who could be an ace for any team. Uh, and alongside him, you have Justin Verlander and, and uh, some really interesting younger arms, Christian Javier and, and the like that mm -hmm. um, gives them once again, an extremely dangerous rotation and uh, a bullpen. They can do interesting things with Hunter Brown. And and uh, I don't know, I, I just love the way they're set up and it's more their lineup that needs to click. And they didn't make any big moves in that lineup. Uh, but, you know, I don't think they necessarily needed to. You can always find a center fielder among, you know, who you have already, the the McCormick's of the world. Yeah. So um, I like how it sets up for them. And yeah, you give up your a couple of your top, you know, three prospects. But listen, you're playing for today. You're also willing to spend a little bit more money uh, to maybe go get that guy instead of having a, pro a prospect ready. 
um, it, it's it's good for them, and and I guess good for the Mets if you're willing to like stomach what uh, what they're what they're going through with. I guess you call it more of a hoping it's more of a bridge year than it is a rebuild. Yeah, and we'll find out exactly how that all plays out, of course, with the passage of time, as we always do. Uh, you brought up a team playing for today. I'm not sure exactly what the gain is going to be out of this. We'll find out over the next 55 or so games with the Padres. Not quite as disappointing in 2023 as the Mets, but there's some talk of some dysfunction around that club. Definitely underperformance. They held their trade shifts, the Blake Snells and the Josh Haters, that they could have possibly cashed in on big, I think, as far as prospects are concerned. And they actually brought in some help. But it's just hard to see things really changing for the Padres, especially in the NL West race. I know the Diamondbacks have scuffled a bit. The Dodgers are who they are. The Giants have been competitive. Then you kind of pull back and look at the wild card you got to contend with other teams like the Phillies, like the Marlins, to try to climb over that heap and get into October. It just feels like the Padres, they're just so committed, and they have been so committed to spending money yeah. and making big trades. Maybe they just didn't feel like they could really even afford to take a step back for the overall, I, I don't know, the the way that people perceive what the Padres are trying to do out there. Yeah, I think they're uh, they're a little bit allergic to hunting on any of the years in this like window of contention. And so... When you look at what they added, you know, Garrett Cooper, Sean Reynolds, uh, Rich Hill, G-Man Choi, uh, Scott Barlow, like none of those are difference makers. However, if everything goes right with the rest of the roster, or even if everything goes the way we thought, you know, everybody else performs the way we thought they would perform, mm -hmm. is that a good enough team to make the playoffs? Yeah, a lot else needs to happen, you know, outside of their control. But is this still a, a, a team that would scare you in a three-game series? Absolutely. And so those are solid ads, did not cost them much, did not cost them uh, in terms of in interesting young players or prospects uh, or cash, really, for that matter. Um, so they got a little bit better, but you know, similar to the Cubs, is it enough? I, I don't know. Um, it almost feels like they're so far underwater, even compared to the Cubs, that they would have to do something pretty substantial to to help their case. But you know, as we stand today, they are still under 500, uh, a game under 500, only four games out of the wild card. So I don't not believe in the Padres, but they've just like lost all trust over the course of this year. You know, yeah. we were all picking them to to finish first or second in this division, and now you're sitting fourth behind Arizona and San Francisco as well. So, um, it, it, I, you know, hard to grade that that outcome, but I think they just want to continue to give this team a chance, and with good reason, I think. So they're just not ready to punt, and certainly not going to trade a big one like uh, Soto, and they decided not even to move their rentals. So, yeah, um, you know, with with, with the market that that was out there you'd think Blake Snell could have brought back a lot going to the Reds or somebody like that but I think they're just you know overly overly committed already and and uh weren't even going to consider that in the end yeah I mean it's understandable AJ Preller obviously at San Diego their ownership has shown that it's a new dawn in the you know for that team so I can understand not wanting to take any kind of step back that might keep you know people from being interested in coming out to San Diego and seeing what it's all about and it did play out very differently than of course the Mets situation did Steve and I appreciate all of your time talking about the trade deadline. Uh, let everybody know where they can follow you. And of course, anything that you have uh, in the pipeline that you're working on, we'd love to give you a chance to plug that. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, X, whatever, at Stephen J. Nesbitt and uh, all my work at theathletic.com. We're wrapped up 100,000 trade grades and all sorts of other trade deadline content. So we're turning the page to a lot of big storylines in baseball. So stay tuned. All right. Well, Stephen, I appreciate your time as always. Look forward to having you on the show as we get down the stretch, maybe into October will be a good time to reconvene. So look forward to talking to you then. Sounds good. Thanks, Grant. When we come back here on From the Diamond, we'll turn our attention back to the Atlanta Braves, discuss some of the big stories, and take a look at the week to come. That is next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Talking Braves and beyond. Baseball. With From the Diamond. Welcome back into From the Diamond. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios. 
Sports Radio 929 The Game. We wrap up this show, wrap up this week, and the weekend it was for the Braves. Some disappointment in Chicago. No two ways about that. Not the cleanest series for the Braves. Think a little sloppy baseball. Not the greatest weather either, but both teams have to play through that, so you can't really hang your hat on that one. You don't want to anyway because it's no fun for anybody. But the Braves on the wrong side of the last couple of games, 8-6 to six was the final in Game 2, and the Braves came up. Two runs short, 6-4 the score on Sunday as they dropped two out of three uh, to the Chicago Cubs team, which let me just point out, I mean, they're on a nice little roll for themselves at the exact right time. And a lot of people, as we just talked about with uh, Stephen Nesbitt there of The Athletic, I mean, a lot of folks thought, well, the Cubs, they'll trade Cody Bellinger, they'll trade their closer, maybe they'll trade a starter or two, and, you know, they'll move on and they'll focus on 2024. But that actually was not the case. Uh, looking overall, what the Cubs have done now is they've gotten on this run. This is from Jesse Rogers of ESPN, who covers this team. After the series went over the Braves, they jumped Miami, did the Cubs, and into a tie with Cincinnati for a wildcard spot. So, I mean, the Cubs have moved themselves into the spot of being in October, which is, of course, what they're looking for. Only a game and a half behind Milwaukee in the division, and now they're going to get the Mets. And we all know what the Mets have just been through. We just talked about that quite a bit on the show as well. So the Cubs have put themselves with a well-timed hot streak right where you want to be. And, again, they didn't tear it all down to the studs to start over again next year. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what exactly it is goes on for the Chicago team going down the stretch. But the Braves, done with the Cubs, certainly for now. Uh, Atlanta, though, the offensive rampage that this club has been on is nothing short of impressive. And while, again, they were on the wrong side of a series loss to the Cubs, you saw this offense flex its muscles in Game 1, slugging home runs left and right. Matt Olson continues to put on an absolute show. I'll get to him in a moment. But the Braves lead the majors in home runs by a very wide margin. It gets wider by the day, it seems. Atlanta's the only team in baseball with 200 home runs this year. They've got 212. The next closest team to the Braves in home runs in all of Major League Baseball, 176. That's the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're also known to be a pretty good offensive club from time to time, year to year. This puts the Braves on pace for 315 home runs, which would be a Major League Baseball record. Previous record for the team is 249. So the Braves are now 37 away from matching the most home runs in franchise history in a single season with 53 games left to go. So about halfway through the remainder of the slate, the Braves should be breezing on by that 249 marker on their way to the Minnesota Twins major league record, also set in 2019. That's when the Braves did theirs for the franchise, 307 home runs. Braves on pace to get well beyond that. They have four players now with 25 or more home runs. As you've got Ronald Acuna Jr. with 25, Ozzie Albies with 25, Austin Riley with 26, and National League home run leader Matt Olson. Told you I was going to get to him. He's got 39 of those after another one on Sunday. And that quartet now has 115 home runs. And if you follow me on social media, again, at Grant McCauley's where you can find me regardless of platform or platform name. The Braves quartet, the first four batters in the order, that's Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzie Albies, Austin Riley, and Matt Olson, in that order, have out-homered eight other Major League Baseball teams. And coming into the day, we're just two home runs behind the Milwaukee Brewers. So the top four hitters in the Atlanta order have been more powerful than eight, nearly nine other entire Major League Baseball teams. That should just tell you how good this offense is. And obviously, the seasons that Ron Lacuna Jr. is having, and, and everybody in that uh, particular lineup, and of those four men, are having great years. But We've talked so much about Ronald Acuna Jr., not as, as much on this show, though he had an outstanding series with multi-hit games in each of the three contests against the Cubs. A couple of more stolen bases. He's got 53 of those now, steals, which is most in baseball. 
on pace for a franchise record in that category. But it's been Matt Olson, I think, who's been getting a lot of the publicity lately as far as Braves hitters are concerned. And it's not because Ron Lacuna Jr. has slowed up and stopped doing things. No, he's done plenty of things. But with Olsen's home run on Sunday, he's now on an incredible pace for both home runs and runs batted in. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but he leads Major League Baseball in runs batted in. Olsen's got 39 home runs, second only to Shohei Otani, who just passed 40 over the weekend. He's first in runs batted in. He's got 97 of those. That puts him on pace for 58 home runs and 143 runs batted in. 58 home runs would be a franchise record far beyond what Andrew Jones set in 2005. 51 is the Braves' home run record. 143 runs batted in. I'd have to go back and look, but I believe that'd be the most by a Braves hitter since at least 1900. So you're putting together a a pretty darn good season if you're Matt Olson, which brings you to that next logical point when you start talking about being on pace for leading the league in home runs and RBIs and setting franchise records and leading Major League Baseball in big categories and going on a torrid hot streak the way he has the last about seven or eight weeks now. Where's Matt Olson in this MVP discussion? I can tell you right now, I think the three top vote-getters, and maybe in in this exact order, is Ronald Acuna Jr. hands down is the winner of the MVP. I don't think anybody has done anything to usurp him at this point, and they're running out of time. And I don't think Ronald is going to stop doing the things he's doing this year anytime soon. Freddie Freeman is having an outstanding season for the Los Angeles Dodgers, has a chance to hit a boatload of doubles, extra base hits. I mean, he's doing all the things that you expect out of a hitter of Freddie Freeman's caliber. And ironically, because they just have to be linked together forever, Matt Olson, in addition to Freddie Freeman, is also having an outstanding and ridiculous season of offensive proportions, the likes of which the Braves franchise has not seen in terms of home runs. Because again, you hit 58 home runs, you're going to get some MVP votes. So I would feel like if it were the season were to end today, it would be Ron Lacuna Jr., a nice little space, and then Freddie Freeman and Matt Olson would pretty much be neck and neck. Who finishes second? Maybe Freeman, maybe Olson. I don't know. Could be a photo finish. Not really sure. Freeman's got some outstanding credentials. You can go you know, look up his stats if you want to. We're not going to spend the whole show talking about what Freddie's doing out there because it's just not as uh, in vogue and as important here in Atlanta anymore. But just trust me, he's having a good year. But so is Matt Olson, and I think that's more to the point. Uh, speaking of good years and things that are helping the Braves' offense to be powered right along, Michael Harris II has been one of the absolute best things to happen for this offense since the middle of the summer. Since June the 7th, when he hit that big home run to help beat the Mets and close out that series and really kind of close out the National League East rivalry between those two clubs, his work in the nine spot has made this lineup that much more potent. Last 49 games, 364 batting average for Harris and 184 plate appearances. That's the best mark in Major League Baseball over the last two months. He's hit nine homers, scored 31 runs, knocked in 26 more, and swiped eight bases. So Michael Harris... I mean, far from a sophomore slump, has really turned his season around and is now one of the big parts of the Braves' offensive juggernaut. Really no two ways about that. Speaking of somebody who should be feeling pretty good about where he is, though he did give up a run and prove to be human against the Chicago Cubs on Sunday, but Joe Jimenez has been outstanding in this Braves' bullpen. I tweeted about this a little bit earlier this week, but last 23 appearances for Jimenez, an ERA now of 116, He has struck out 27 men, only six walks and 14 hits, no homers for him. That's helped him lower his ERA over two full runs in the process. And all of a sudden, I mean, we talked about the trade deadline a lot, but this was a big trade over the offseason that the Braves made in hopes of having a setup man that could really help them out in 2023. And Joe Jimenez has looked like that guy over the past couple of months. And the Braves are going to need more important innings out of him. And one other note before we get out of here, down on the farm, 
I did mention earlier that Dylan Lee started his rehab assignment. I feel like four or five more appearances after being out for a couple of months, probably likely for him, but he could be back in the next couple of weeks, certainly. But Hurston Waldrop, who was the number one pick for the Braves in their draft class out of Florida, he made his pro debut on Saturday. And how about this line? Three innings of one earned run, two runs overall, three hits, no walks, but eight strikeouts across three innings. Pretty good way to start a career for Hurston Waldrop. And we'll see what his path is as a college arm. You know, you're not going down to the minors to work your way through every single level and stay there for an entire year. He could be a fast riser for the Braves. And if he keeps pitching like that and piling up those strikeouts, and with that split-finger fastball, uh, he could be a, a pitcher to watch. Braves, meanwhile, continue their road trip. It's a four-game set against the Pirates, then four games against the New York Mets. But it's Monday in Pittsburgh as the Braves open up that four-game series. That'll wrap things up on this week's show. I want to thank Stephen Nesbitt of The Athletic for joining me a little bit earlier and all of you for making From the Diamond part of your baseball listening regimen. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check us out every Sunday right here on 92.9 The Game. That'll wrap us up for this week. I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next time. And until then, so long, everyone.